0: This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival.
1: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ruth Wishart. It's my very great pleasure to be chairing this session of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Now, I suspect suspect a large number of you represent something of a niche audience, those enlightened humans who understand just how much dogs enrich our lives. Um, In fact, could we have the house lights for a second? Hands up who's got a dog? Hooray! (laughs) Wow! Thank you very much. I wonder if anybody hasn't got a dog (laughs) and what they're doing here. And we're not going to ask about cats, it's not that kind of a programme. But uh, one canine in particular has considerable input in the life and times of our guest this afternoon, a distinguished journalist and broadcaster who nevertheless describes his major journalistic milestone as the day his first column about Kudu found its way into print. He spent, of course, some considerable time in our homes, anchoring news programs, presenting documentaries and features, and reporting from various corners of our troubled globe in uh, those measured tones we've learned to trust and respect. Despite such worldly wisdom, he understands that his main role in life is as the man known notionally as the owner of a rather aristocratic-looking Springer Spaniel. It's that particular pooch who stars in his latest publication, principally a collection of his Telegraph columns entitled Diary of a Dog Walker, Time Spent Following a Lead. Please welcome Ed Sturton.
0: Thank you, but are you going to confess your interest in this subject? You... I have a dog. You have a dog.
1: <laughs> a dog has me. What, and
0: what sort of a dog is it?
1: My dog is a a Tibetan Terrier who's currently languishing in the slammer owing to my book festival duties.
0: And is she well behaved? No. Right. (laughs) No, I I only ask because I had a great great friend who had a Tibetan Terrier, which famously, in sort of family law, squatted in the middle of the picnic rug at a very grand country house picnic. In fact, not just the picnic rug, the actual picnic and did what dogs do when they squat. And her only comment was, did you know that Tibetan terriers are the reincarnation of Buddhist monks? <laughs> As if that made it okay in some way.
1: I didn't know that Buddhist monks had a habit of soiling
0: well. <laughs> <laughs> You learn something every day. My you? dog has never done anything you know, like that. No, of course she would not. No.
1: She is, however, a dog with attitude, and that's all part of the attraction of Tibetan terriers. Springer Spaniards, I imagine, are not n- incredibly well-trained animals, are they?
0: Oh, well, how dare you say such? <laughs> I've done previous events like this, and every time somebody asks me if my Springer Spaniel pulls on the lead, it does. They just do. But they're quite sort of well-mannered. As you say, aristocratic creatures. I'm so sorry you didn't
1: bring him because I've never met a well-mannered Springer Spaniel. Have you
0: not? <laughs> Perhaps it's just as well I didn't. But uh, No, I would have loved to have brought him, but uh, I don't think you would have enjoyed the plane flight very much. Really. Tell me
1: um, about the genesis of this, Ed, because I know that you... Um, How shall I put this delicately? Married a cat
0: lover? I did. It was tricky. It was really tricky. It was a matter of... She's not here. She's coming up a bit later on today, so I can be frank about it. Yeah, we're safe. (laughs) Um, It was also, I have to admit, to do with gender balancing in the household. Um, (laughs) There was my daughter, my stepdaughter, my wife, one female cat, and one male cat that had been neutered and, frankly, was therefore pretty useless. So I was the only bloke. I wanted another bloke, and he's a very blokish dog. Springer Spaniels are blokish. They're blokish. Mm-hmm. They like you know, walks and mud and fields and guns and all that I stuff. I loved
1: that bit when you were talking about how you went to get her, how you managed to persuade this cat-loving uh, spouse of yours that you just go and have a look. See, who do you know who's ever going to look well, at her? She, she, did,
0: she did say that as, as she left the office that afternoon, somebody shouted at her, if you're going to look... It's not a question of whether it'll be a question of which one. Exactly. And, and I'm, I'm sorry to break into dog's sentimentality this, mo- this early in, in, in the session, but. This little thing climbed up my stepdaughter's arm out of the sort of mass of puppy flesh. And that was it. <laughs> that was it. Yes. That decided. And actually, dead. again, I can say this because she's not here. She is now the most sentimental member of the family about the dog, this cat loving spouse of mine. I fight to keep it off the bed. She lets it on, which, you know, I mean, I don't know what the general view here okay, is. Okay, okay. Dogs Lights sleeping up. On, on beds. Lights is, up, please. Um...
1: Like, whose dog sleeps in the bed? Oh. Ah, <laughs> ah. Then again, it's Edinburgh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. And,
0: and for the record, yours? It does. All right. Just to get, that, get that clear.
1: It's a Glasgow dog. <laughs> I'm... Interesting. I mean, the, the columns, of course, cover all, all manner of eventualities, uh, Ed, but one of the things that you say, which I think is a profundity about being a dog owner, which is that you can strike up conversations with people in a way that you absolutely wouldn't in a, any other... I, I, I,
0: that was the big revelation for me, I have to say, because having had dogs when I was younger and then getting one in, in sort of middle age... In London, people walk along in silos. You can't look at anybody. And if you smile at someone in the tube or on the park, the next thing you know, the police are around your house looking at the computer hard drive for paedophile imagery. I mean, you, you, know, you are a pervert. Um, but it all changes with with dogs. If you've got a dog, you just can interact. And I think that's a profoundly civilizing thing about dogs. It's astonishing also how quickly intimacy develops you know one moment it's oh how charming they're playing together and what a fine looking um, poodle or dachshund or whatever it is and the next you're getting the most intimate secrets about their divorce or their sex life or whatever it is (laughs) as you walk around the park and and there's nothing else there's also nothing else that to be honest I mean I'm a happily married man but nothing else which allows you to say hello to a member of the opposite sex again without being thought to be exactly 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 the other
1: thing have you noticed though when you meet other dog walkers in, in the manner you're suggesting is that um, forever after they're not, you know, Fred or, or, or no, Nancy, they're Dusty's mother and, yeah. Yes. Quite
0: embarrassing, And you have really. to, when you introduce them to other dog yeah, walkers, exactly. this, not this is Ruth, but this is... This is Charlie's... Um, yeah, Gillies. Yeah. Yes? Gillies. 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 Gillies yeah,
1: yeah. Ooh, I didn't ask her about being named here, i need to check that one out when I go Oh my gosh.
0: She is Gilly, have, in fact, yes. She's called Gilly, but we'll block her face out like they do. Indeed. In, in, in they in once, the uh, ladies
1: and gentlemen, when um, Ed got kudu to write his column, a wise move in my view, always to let your dog write your column from time to time. But anyway, they switched the mug shots yes, and the paper. They did, they put
0: him at the top of me at the bottom. Um, <laughs> actually, it's quite an interesting area, that letting your dog write your column, because in a funny sort of way, you realise what the limits on your knowledge of a dog Oh, I mean, that's one of the fun, fascinating things about your relationship with the dogs. You think you know them very well. But when you try and put your, get your, inside their heads and actually write as they would write, you realize that you don't. You actually mostly imagine you know. I mean, he's, we know he's nice, we know he's well mannered but what his sort of view on politics and so forth. I mean, you have to be a bit careful of going too far with that, I found.
1: You also have to be careful, do you not, and I guess we might both plead guilty to this, about you know, casually investing dogs with human qualities.
0: Yes, which we all do, and that's part of the fun dog ownership, but you, again, I think you have to be careful not to anthropomorphize too much, I was, and I, I think hate, you see that because
1: I was worried... I know, and it's to, a tricky one. It's, yes.
0: one. it's one of those ones where when you say it on the radio, you sort of take a run at it and hope, <laughs> hope that you can get through it. But what, what I, I do hate um, that, what they, do you know about this phrase of word fur kid? I don't... A fur kid is, is a word for a little dog that's like a kid and that people have in their handbags. Oh dear. And I just can't be doing with that. There's, Apparently, I mean, sorry, this is slightly disgusting. Perhaps it's because I'm, I'm a man, I think it's slightly disgusting. But uh, apparently when you st- uh, stroke, or well, when some women stroke dogs, it releases the same hormones that you get when you breastfeed. I know, it's just <laughs> awful. So that, I, that whole... <laughs> Was it... It's Edinburgh, isn't it? Sorry, I shouldn't, I, I shouldn't have done that, should I?
1: I'm not Beg guilty of being struck down, but you've managed it. yeah. <laughs> Let's, uh, we're going to um, talk about lots of other things apart from dogs, sadly. Um, but uh, let's just uh, talk a little bit about um, uh, presidential putches because they, they, they pop up in the book from time to time, and it's quite do. interesting. Um, about well, I mean, let's you being such a francophile, let's start off with the, the French presidential putches.
0: This this actually was something that came up in a conversation with one of your new <laughs> residents in Edinburgh, Mr. Nocte. Uh, he and I were taking our dogs to walk, for a walk in Richmond Park, which of course is a place of great history. We began to talk about dogs and politics. And it made me reflect on on, on what I think is the best ever biography written of Francois Mitterrand, who was president of France when I was based in Paris. And I think he's a fascinating figure. It's written by his Labrador, who's called Baltique. And of course, Baltique has a, a uniquely intimate insight into what the president gets up to, and he, for example, recalls the fact that uh, the president trains him to drop his toys in the offices of ministers who he suspects of disloyalty, and the toys have been bugged, so meter on (laughs) them. And and, and Baltic's also a very um, well-behaved Labrador, and is thoroughly confused when his master tries to. Train him to pee down a pair of Savile Row trousers. It emerges that uh, that uh, Edouard Balladur, the Prime Minister, wears Savile Row trousers, and the, <laughs> the President is very keen to see them uh, see them wetted in this way. It's, it's 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 a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, and actually, interestingly, I, I bought it when I was based in Paris 20 years ago. It's now incredibly expensive on AB Books or Amazon because it's obviously very popular. Probably then,
1: old was one of the few people in Paris who knew about Mitron's affair.
0: Well, I think we all knew about Mitterrand's affairs. I don't don't think... It wasn't a great secret. The French
1: French press didn't um, write
0: about it. I mean, mean, particularly in the light of the whole sort of Strauss-Kahn thing, it's one of those fascinating areas where French attitudes, I think, have changed significantly because... This was 1989, and certainly everybody sort of in the, you know, in journalistic and political circles knew about that, yeah. but nobody spoke. It was also, but it, it had a sort of charm that way, that approach to life. He, he used to walk around the streets of Paris in the evenings, quite unaccompanied by people, and people would just smile and say hello, and no one would bother him. Um, sort of intimate, rather intimate sort of private Um, way that presidents could live there that they can't, I suspect now. Chirac had uh, a rather less
1: happy experience Uh, uh, with uh, his dog. His
0: Maltese terrier, which when they left the Elysee, started savaging Mrs. Chirac and had to be banished to the country, which led me to investigate the whole question of whether there is a link between dogs and bad presidents. Because George Bush's, intriguingly, you remember George Bush's little, um, little spaniel thing? It started attacking the press. Was
1: it
0: not? Which... Which you can't, I mean, you're right, it wasn't a Spaniard. What was it? It was Terry. Quite right, Sky Anyway, which, which can't help you make you feel that it had divined its master's wishes in some way. it um, would been bi- much more
1: useful for savage
0: George Bush. Being a BBC man, I could not possibly comment on that. <laughs> As you know, when you join the BBC, you have a surgical procedure to remove your capacity to hold any interesting opinions whatsoever.
1: Well, what are we going to do for the other?
0: <laughs> Talk about dogs. <laughs> Well, it's interesting, actually, when I started writing this column, um, the BBC were very stern. They said, you're not allowed to write columns. column. It says, you know, in your contract, you cannot write columns. So I went through the sort of rules and regulations and found in paragraph 34, subsection C, um, you know, line D, that lifestyle columns are excluded. So the dog's a lifestyle. So it's, it's, it's very unusual. A dog is one of the few things BBC people can have okay. views about. Not many people know that.
1: You kind of views about one or two things that are canine-related. However, I was wondering what you thought. I mean, we talked a bit about um, which president had which dog. Do you have any views as a BBC man, um, as a columnist, as a lifestyle columnist? Okay, okay, um, okay. Do you have any views about what the, the breed of dogs that people has uh, buy tell, tells you about the character?
0: Well, shall we start with the Tibetan?
1: Term? No. <laughs> We've done the Tibetan <laughs> territory and, and we'll allow you off the hook well, with the Springer Spaniel. But just for the sake of our well, essentially, I
0: mean, Putin, of course, going back to yeah. presidential, he he ticked off George Bush and said that a little dog like that was not worthy of the dignity of a president, and that his his labrador was much stronger and fiercer I mean, it's interesting that a, that a president president yeah well also, so. but also interesting that a president should should boast about the fact that his dog yeah. is fierce and aggressive I and mean, that says something about yeah. the political culture should he've been buying
1: a Rottweiler or something like well that? i suppose
0: he could have done i mean I, yeah i don't know um, Springers, i think do they they do suggest a sort of hearty lifestyle that's what i think as i stride out with him anyway. They're not sentimental springers. Well, actually they are, they're dreadfully sentimental, but, but you're they're, they're sort some... <laughs> him sound like
1: an accessory. Ah.
0: He thinks he that I belong to him. Well, At least I, I think, Which yeah. they do, by and large.
1: Naturally. Uh, anyway, um, we will move on to things about which you may have an opinion. It would be uh, silly to have you sitting here, Ed, and... Uh, not talk about your other work. I know, only, I know the real work is writing about Kudu, but just occasionally you... Um, <laughs> okay, you, just you do a bit of broadcasting. broadcasting, yes. Exactly. Yes. So I was talking to a mutual friend of ours. Um, a you mean very yours th- and mine? Yes. Uh, Are you going to give a name? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll, get it, short, I'll get it off you later. We'll. Possibly. Um, a very short time ago, who said um, that he, which is the only clue you're going to get, he thought... Um, that your career had actually blossomed post today, but I know that losing today at the time was a, was a pretty big blow.
0: Well, you can't, having said when I had the job that it's the best job in the world, I can't really turn around afterwards and say, well, it wasn't really, actually. So I do still miss it, it was a great job. But yeah, there's lots of, lots of other things to do, and, and Radio 4 is a unique institution in the world, I think. It's one of the great sort of cultural influences on British life. It has a kind of breadth and a reach that mm. nothing else quite does. Um, and it has been great fun exploring some of the other sorts of things that you can do um, on the network. Things which aren't quite always so hard newsy, as I'm used but to doing. But
1: series which involve the kind of conversations you couldn't possibly have in today. I think that's right.
0: Yes, you can be more leisurely in some of the other bits of the network. You can, you can also, I mean, this actually in a funny sort of way does come back to the dogs a bit. I've done a couple of series. Um, based around rivers, for example, and using rivers and waterways as a way into history and politics. The Jordan, for example, was one we did. And it's a wonderfully rich mix built around that river. And the only reason I say it's back to dogs is because, again, it's using something in a slightly oblique manner to get at a subject, mm. which, again, is something that you, know, you, can, do, you can do with, with, with dog writing. Um, and that's really been huge fun to be able to do that, I have to say. And, and Radio 4 is probably, I mean, I. Can't think of anywhere else in the world that has that that kind of institution there's no other radio culture like ours quite i I think this is pure supposition but i think it's got something to do with the war you know there was briefly a television um service established in britain before the second world war and it was closed down for the duration and radio became part of our sort of myth Mm of the war. People huddle around the set listening to Churchill, the French waiting for the code words and yeah. so forth. And so it, it's sort of got a place in our national life that I think doesn't really apply to anywhere else.
1: If you look at that through the other end of the telescope, I mean, your relationship with listeners. Would you like to... You've got a relationship with listeners. You, you have a relationship with viewers. You now have a relationship with readers. Um, and the kind of Intimacy skill. how do you rate these?
0: Well, it's a very... um, There's that Marshall McLuhan, the great um, media sort of cult writer, who said that television is a cold medium and radio is a hot medium. And it's perfectly true that when you're on television... I used to work quite a lot on television. People would say to you after you'd done a broadcast, that was a hideous tie you were wearing, or did you realise that your shirt was slightly um, coffee stained or whatever it is. When you've been on the radio, they immediately react to what you've said. And to the interviews you've done, and, and, and they they feel they know you much better than they feel they know and the you. when much more
1: important. Yeah,
0: and they're much more comfortable about just leaning over in a bar and saying, "Oh, by the way, that was a good interview. What nerve were you doing asking that question or whatever it is?" And that's actually very appealing and very nice. I think it's it's partly to do with with the circumstances in which people listen to you. You know, in bed, in the bath, hmm. they won't say it on the loop. I mean, you know. Cooking meals, yeah. and, and they feel that you're in their household, in a funny sort of way. It's
1: another phenomenon I think about. I mean, I I've borrowed a flat of a very nice friend for the duration of the book festival, and uh, our houses are uh, flats. Uh, our houses are quite different, but but they have exactly the same um, situation in one regard, which is that every room has a radio in it. And every time you switch it on, it's on Radio 4, so you can go (laughs) perambulate around your various morning things, and there you still are.
0: You've got to be very careful about that. I I was was, um, doing some reporting abroad the other day, but I met a man who was a tremendous fan of the World Service, and he said he'd actually glued his radio dial to the World Service. And then they went and changed the frequencies. (laughs) (laughs) Got up one morning and pressed a button.
1: Very was absolutely furious he was. Hilary, <laughs> not to not to dwell on today uh, particularly, but um, it's all right. <laughs> uh, but I, I sometimes wonder, you know, you did that for so long and so well, um, that when you're listening to somebody else doing an interview, is it possible to be entirely dispassionate while you're listening or thinking, "Well, no, I wouldn't have done it quite that way, or I would have asked this, or why well, I did think he we, do that?" We all,
0: we all do that all the time anyway. Yeah. But you don't, you don't. Do, I mean, I don't think you always think I could have done that better. You often think how interesting. That he did it that way. Yeah. I don't know. Now, why? Like, I don't, maybe like a plumber looking at the way somebody's put the pipes together. You don't necessarily think that he's wrong. You think, why did he do it that yeah. way? Um, and I mean, I, for example, I'm, I, I'm a huge fan of, of John Humphreys. I know he's a controversial figure in many ways, but I always learn something by listening to his interviews because he, he's so sharp. And the thing he, I mean, the thing he does, which, which I admire and try to emulate, is he listens. He He does. Uh, No, no. Well, you
1: know,
0: he does. I mean, this is quite serious because I I think the the great skill of interviewing is not the questions; it's listening to the answers and picking up on where they're going. And I'll give you a good example of it. I don't know whether you remember this. Um, There was an occasion when he was talking to Claire Short. It was about three years ago, perhaps a bit more actually, four or five years ago. Um, And in the course of an answer, I forget what the interview was about, but in the course of an answer, she made a, a reference to some transcripts she'd seen of intelligence reports of the conversations of Kofi Annan. And you could hear the sort of pause. And the easy thing to do in those circumstances is to think, I can't quite work out what that is, so I'll go on and talk about whatever the subject of the interview was. John paused, and he said, hang on a sec, did you see it say that when you were in the cabinet, you saw intelligence transcripts of the Secretary General of the United Nations conversations? And she sort of, there was a pause, she said, well, yes. Said, do you mean to tell me the British government bugs the you know, and, and just by listening and picking up, he'd got a story. And that's, I think, a really, really important interviewing skill. I accept and, uh, that
1: unreservedly. But I mean, a lot of, of um, I mean, the Today program is quite regularly punctuated by interviewees saying, if I could just finish the sentence, John. Yes. Well, to, I mean, I, know, I think we've got a politician
0: here. I happen to know we have. Because I saw we'll Ming to... Campbell beforehand. But um, let, let, me, let, me, let me say two things. Um, in answer to that. One is that um, politicians have become more and more skilled at the techniques of interviewing. And I think there is a terrible sort of vicious circle where we see that, and we feel we have to sort of up the game a little bit in trying to break through the sort of carapace of, of technique that they now have. And they then get a bit more skilled at countering us. And we have a sort of mad dance which excludes all of the audience, and I'm not quite sure how you get out of that, because we can't just let them get Get away with with it, it. I don't think. Um, But equally, I think there is a sort of incestuousness about it it, um, sometimes.
1: But is there a temptation Uh, for the interviewer, the Humphreys figure, to um, be more interested in the impression they're making than the impression the politician or whoever is making? um, No, I don't think that's
0: right. But I think that sometimes if you realise that a politician is not going to answer what you're trying to get at you try to put him in a position or her into a position where that fact itself is apparent to the audience. And that's all you can really do. And that does usually require a bit of you know, following up. Um, and, and the other thing is that some politicians now have what I call a preemptive stutter. In other words, before you've even interrupted, they'll say, hang on, hang on, just let me finish, just let me finish. <laughs> so the audience thinks you're a big tusk. And when actually, you haven't actually. <laughs> there, was one, there was one who shall remain nameless. No, John Prescott. Um, who, who, Lord who, Prescott, to you? Well, indeed, he wasn't at this stage, um, and he calls me Eddie on the air because he knows it annoys me. Um, but he—I'll he, bear that in mind. Yeah. Okay. He actually—he actually, um, he actually in, interrupted my first question before I'd finished it, and I thought, Hang on, I haven't even, you know got the chocks away yet and already a, or,
1: I, I saw John Humphreys describing this particular uh, technique of avoidance as the uh, weapons of mass deception. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, well,
0: I, I'm not sure I'd agree. It's not so much mass deception. It, it's diversion more than deception in a funny sort of way. It's trying to... I mean, it, it's, it's a perfectly sensible technique as a politician to go into an interview with the objective of answering the question that you want asked. Whatever the interviewer asks, because that's the the grounds that you want to exactly that's you want to get your message across. So that's and and that's why I say it's distraction rather than deception. It's putting the focus on the bit of the story that is favourable to you, and not on the bit that might look a bit sort of shoddy.
1: Now I know you're not going to have any opinion on this at all, (laughs) being a BBC chap. um, But the the Today programme has now got um, four men and a token woman. Well, I don't I mean think, to say that Sarah's a token in, a, in say, terms think, of her broadcasting ability. as they
0: say, dispute the premise of your no. question. I'll Sarah's a it, splendid I person and not in the least means. bit token. Of all and, the um, fine
1: interviewers in the Today programme, only <laughs> one of them is female. That is true. And that's all you're prepared to say <laughs> in the matter.
0: Well, I don't... I mean, listen, I, I mean, I, I, there's no point in me saying things about a subject I can't really have any influence over. I do, I do think it's interesting um, that, that over the years, more... Women interviewers have not come onto the Today programme, and I'm not sure what the what the reason for that is. Um, genuinely, whether it's to do with the stage we've reached in which women are coming through broadcasting, but that seems unlikely because there are women in all sorts of very senior positions in, in television management, for example. Right. Um, so I don't know the answer to that. Um, That's
1: and, something a politician wouldn't have said.
0: Uh, well, maybe, but it's, it's it's a useful way. I tell you, if somebody says that to you in the middle of an interview, it absolutely floors you. It's <laughs> that the, the most the most effective politician answer is either when they say I don't know, or when they answer your question,
1: <laughs> which, <laughs> which you know you're
0: you're lost. No you know. Yes, exactly. Oh, weather, <laughs> you know, sport, something. <laughs>
1: Yeah, let me just... If I want to open this up to the audience, but let me just ask you one last question about broadcasting, Ed. I mean, you, you said yourself that, uh, you know, Radio 4 is a wonderfully eclectic territory to, yeah. to cover. Of all the things you have done post and you've done a huge amount in terms of foreign reportage, in terms of, of, of feature programmes, documentaries, what, I mean, what's your ideal programme structure? What do you most enjoy?
0: Well, that's a really... I, 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 I'm not being sort of difficult about this. I don't, I'm not sure I can answer that, because I do like such a sort of range of things. I think there's nothing... Quite like the thrill of live broadcasting, mm-hmm. of that sensation you have that once it gets out of your lips, it's gone. Yeah. And I think, I suppose, it's a bit mischievous. But think of your new resident in this city, my distinguished colleague, Mr. Nocte, and the occasion when he introduced the culture <laughs> secretary.
1: Quite, but neither of us are going to try that. That's an example.
0: <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's happened, it's happened. to all. It happened to me once um, in a slightly similar way. Because uh, as soon as somebody tells you that you're going to make a mistake or warns you, it's That's sort of in your mind. Opinion. And I, I used to do commentary on Trooping the Color for uh, BBC One um, many years ago. And on one occasion, the producer said to me, just before we went on the air, he said, whatever you do, just remember that the chaps in the, in the frogging and, and, and the, the black tunics um, with the guns are the royal horse artillery, not the royal ass artillery. <laughs> sure enough. <laughs> It, it would never have
1: occurred to me if you hadn't Quite. said
0: it. And you sort of you could feel it happening. It's terrible. The, the odd
1: thing about the Jim Noted uh, Jeremy Hunt um, incident yes was not that he did that because that could happen to any live broadcaster, but that Andrew Marr.
0: In, it in, so
1: it's catching, it's catching, there's no question about it. But I mean, the same day.
0: Yeah, No, no, well, it, 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 that's, that, that's make my point. As soon as the thought's in your mind, you fight it, I and mean, you know it's going to happen. And it's going to pop it's out anyway.
1: Pop out. Right, let's have the lights up properly this time, um, and we'll, we'll get some questions from the audience. We've also got, I think, one or two dogs in here, so could I just bid you welcome? Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> see a nice association over there, I think. There's there was a lab down it. there, isn't there? Yes. There's a lab there, yes. Anybody else? <laughs> right. Let's have some questions. There's two microphones, and I'd be very grateful if you'd wait till they arrive before you put your question. Who's going to start us off? That you've stunned them into silence in case they say something they shouldn't. Ed, there's somebody Whatever. there. Uh, I wonder if there's a new way in which politicians perhaps avoid giving question if they are in the radio car. They stand there and say, "I'm sorry, I- I- I've lost you." You know. <laughs> and, um, Yes. There's a nice interval whereby people can get their thoughts together.
0: That, yeah, no, that, 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 um, that has been known to happen. One is suspicious about it uh, sometimes. Um, but, well, the other side of that is do, do you know the famous, I'm sorry to keep bringing up John Prescott, but uh, <laughs> he, he, there are so many wonderful interview stories about him. The occasion when he answered a question, got himself in a tangle, and Uh, He then said, and I forgive the language, but this is what he said. He said, that were crap. Do you you mind if I do it again? To which Nick Robinson replied, we are actually live at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to be a little bit careful of that sort of thing. It
1: could have been worse. Somebody there and then somebody here.
0: Which breed of dog would make the best interviewer and why?
1: Now that I've never heard
0: that one before. That is a very, very—I suppose a terrier, probably, <laughs> since they worry away. Um,
1: but, but, of course, kind of? well,
0: I don't know. Uh, it's, I mean, because of course, what what—that's actually quite a clever question because it raises the whole issue of of what makes a good interviewer. Yes, you're nodding. You've been very smart about this, haven't you? Um, <laughs> and and I think I think that, that as we've been saying, there is certainly a role for the the, the terrier approach, um, but. Perhaps there's also a role for the more sort of sloppy Tibetan terrier approach, perhaps. Because very often you can persuade people to say things just by trying to draw them out and letting them talk. Um, which again is why I think the, the listening thing is so important. You know, you can let someone get to the end of an answer and then just pick them up on something that they perhaps hadn't meant, meant to, to let, let slip. Um, perhaps there's a, I'm trying to think of perhaps there's a Springer Spaniel method of interviewing, which is enormously know. energetic, <laughs> licks you a lot, Moment I don't know, <laughs> I, do. um, I think you could extend the metaphor um, hugely, but I'd go, I'd go for the terrier or the, the sort of more gentle approach. Where you just encourage people to. I think there's an argument
1: in favour of cats here. I'm just thinking because they're more manipulative.
0: Cats, more <laughs> We were talking about the difference between cats and dogs earlier on, and I'm sure some of you are familiar with this, but it's said that the difference, or one of the differences, is that a dog looks at you and says, This man or woman feeds me, they must be God, and a cat looks at you and says, This person feeds me, I must be God.
1: That seems to sum it up. Yeah. <laughs> In the corner up at the back there. Is there anybody else just so we can get the other mic to Yes, somebody there if we can get that mic ready for the next question. Yes, up here. Thank you. Uh, welcome to Edinburgh, Mr. Sturtey. Thank you. Um, um, before I ask my question, have you watched Hacker on CBBC?
0: Uh, is that, I haven't. Is well, that, the is the that what used to be Yes Minister? It's
1: wonderful, wonderful. Oh, okay. Um, could I ask what your worst interview ever was? I think the worst interview I ever listened to, uh, <laughs> it was actually on TV, Right. Uh, although I'm a great fan of, of Radio 4, was um, for, for once, I felt sorry for John Snow, he was interviewing Zach Goldsmith. Did, yeah, you, I didn't well, see it. did you see it or no. hear no. it? It was absolutely awful and he just did not answer his question. He just kept... Going on. Well, let's take, let's take your, your core question. Do you have a... a I do have, a,
0: well, I have several favorites. I think, I think probably the favorite was with a French novelist called Michel Welbeck, who had written, this was just after his first novel had come out in France, about, I guess about sort of six years ago, seven years ago, and it had been a bit of a sort of scandale in Paris because it was pretty disgusting. And it was a sort of satire about the 60s and the libertarian culture that the 60s had given birth to. And um, uh, it was translated into English, so he came into the Today's studio one Saturday morning. And we'd set aside a good five minutes to talk to him, because he was a big cultural figure, and it was an interesting subject. And he, he'd made a sort of bit of a, a, um, a campaign against the 60s as being an occasion of, of, of loose morals and so forth, and done it in this rather disgusting way. It became apparent within about 30 seconds of the interviewing, interview beginning that he didn't speak English as such. <laughs> so I had five minutes of airtime, and somebody who didn't speak English, so sure. I thought the way to do this is to ask longer and longer questions, <laughs> which merely require, require the answer "we" oui, or "not". Because <laughs> he sort of understood what I was saying, but and after after a few minutes of this, I finally sort of plucked up courage. I said, "Well, I'll, I'll try, you know, something a bit more sophisticated." So I said, "Well, Monsieur Welbeck." Many people read the erotic passages in your book, and they will conclude that far being integral to the serious satirical message you are trying to convey, they are, in fact, simply pornography. And he looked at me and said, but of course, they are just pornography. (laughs) So, Which point I really did say, and now sport, I'm afraid. I (laughs) admitted
1: defeat. Lovely. Somebody in there? I think we had a mic. Yes? Thank you. I have to say this very first time I've asked a question, because my husband's usually next to me. We like virgins, but... Yeah, right. <laughs> to, so to defend, I mean, I'm old enough to have grown up with dogs and now cats, and my, you're insulting Springers, <laughs> if I dare say, because my father was a hunter, and he had a Springer as a gun dog, and believe me, they are highly intelligent, oh. and so, sorry about that, and then I won't on. Do you have a question, as well? I'm no, sorry. no, no, no. no, no you don't to, I'm if, just, excuse me. I was just, allowing it, it, you to asked. If, ask if, if,
0: if I gave the impression that I'm not a Springer admirer, that's quite wrong. I'm very, my, I'm, in fact, I get into appalling trouble with my stepdaughter for sticking up for my Springer Spaniel and claiming he's the cleverest person in the world. And she tells me I'm ridiculously indulgent and would never treat my own children as kindly as I treat Hope. So I'm, I'm a complete Springer fan. Um, Mine's just not trained to pick up birds. I did take him shooting once, and he couldn't work out how to get his mouth around the thing. Sort of, he found it quite quickly. But, uh, anyway. What Ed's
1: not telling you is that he got a canine IQ test book and tr- tried it I on did. his Springer and cheated.
0: Well, I t- shall, I re- shall I read you? what yes. my, my, my stepdaughter, who was 15, 16 at the time, uh, wrote a note which he insisted I put on in the column Contrary to what Edward may tell you, I'm sorry to announce, Kudu is not the glowing chosen one he's portrayed to be. I knew while standing in front of the shelf debating whether or not to buy Edward's dog dog IQ test for Christmas, there would be a struggle. Not on Kudu's behalf, but on Ed's. You see, in my eyes, Edward is suffering from a form of denial in regards to our furry friend. A prime example of this was when we actually attempted the test. If Kudu did badly on a particular question, I was told to skip it out. (laughs) as the conditions weren't up to the standard which they would be in a laboratory. However, shock horror, if he did well, my concerns of this were lost, and I was informed our clever little boy was too intelligent for these silly questions. So, there you are. In
1: fairness, they weren't laboratory conditions because there was a barbecue
0: going on. There was out. a barbecue, and that is a bit distracting for a dog when Absolutely. he's doing an IQ test. Yes. Yes. gentlemen,
1: there.
0: Uh, hi, um, I, I was. Uh, I, ca- I came here with the, uh, the expectation you might read some of your book. You have now read a bit of it. I was wondering if you're planning to read any more. I mean, uh, our, our uh, dog came uh, in the expectation. You know, oh wow! So oh, okay. Was, well, I tell you, I'll, re- I'll, I'll read. I'll read. i read you a bit. Which What's your dog called? Uh, Berry.
1: Berry. This is for Berry.
0: This is for Berry. Okay. Well, let me see if I can find. This is actually um, a reader response, which your dog may be interested in, and if he can do what the dog in this, uh, in this letter did, he's very remarkable. It was, it was actually um, provoked by a column I wrote about the way dogs seem to have an instinct for things happening, which is almost paranormal sometimes. One of, one of the readers wrote and said that um, his, it was a rather very touching letter actually, his, his wife had been dying in hospital. And the dog had been at home with his son. And when he rang his son to say that his wife had, had passed away, um, the son said, I know it happened at 3 o'clock, because the dog got up and howled at precisely that time. And of course, it was absolutely right. And this provoked quite a lot of letters and, and emails and so forth. And, and the favorite one I got was this. Some years ago, my friend had a black Labrador. He lived in a downstairs maisonette in London. It was an ordinary dog, friendly, well-behaved, and not particularly remarkable, although obviously intelligent. My friend was divorced and lonely, and the dog and I were his only real friends. On this particular occasion, we were sitting in his lounge and discussing women. He said he'd given up on dating agencies and Lonely Hearts ads and couldn't meet anyone. The dog was in the room and, I suppose, listening. (laughs) After a while, my friend said to the dog, Merlin, find me a perfect woman, will you? And we both laughed. Minutes later, we were in his kitchenette making a coffee when he heard Merlin barking really loudly in the front garden probably someone at the door, I said. We went to the front door and opened it, and Merlin was standing next to a truly stunning-looking woman, (laughs) barking. She said, hello, is this your dog? He just jumped into my car as I opened the door to go. We stood there, staring and dumbfounded. My friend Chris married stunning Sarah 18 months later.
1: In fair, the book's full of, of smashing stories, but that's definitely one of the best. Yes, somebody in the middle there. And I think we had somebody up the back. Yes, right. could we take the other mic up the back? Yep. Thank you. Yes,
0: hello. Uh, as the owner of a five-month-old border collie, I'm completely unmoved by these stories of other breeds. But I was <laughs> quite interested to know how you came to name your dog Kudu after a large vegetarian with long horns. It, it, just before I answer that, of course, colleagues would be brilliant interviewers, wouldn't they, referring to, they, they'd round up the suspect. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the kudu thing is actually, well, two things about it. One, um, his mother belonged to a family with a South African connection, and all their dogs are called things in Zulu. So Africa sort of suggested itself, and the kudu, it springs. And it's a Springer Spaniel. And it's, good, it's a good two-syllable one, which is almost like Gilly. I mean, that's very important, as I'm sure you know, to have a, have a, have a name that you can shout. Um, but there was also a bit of a story about it because there was the most ferocious battle within my family among the children about what he should be called. And I realized after a while that it was a bit like the, you know, when God gives you the par- man the power to name the animals in the book of Genesis. It's a sort of way of establishing power. And actually, this was a sort of internal family Power battle. And every, my youngest son was on his gap here in Latin America, but even he joined in. So we get, sort of, in Facebook, we'd get a message saying, I met a charming Brazilian called Madame Frufru yesterday. How about that? <laughs> you know. And it, it became a real family saga. And, all, and Kudu was partly because of the African thing, partly because it was the one name on which everyone sort of could agree in the end, and peace was restored to the household.
1: Would you like to allude to the condition that you mentioned, the book, Ed, of. Um, uh, let me just get it right, dog vanity by proxy in the well, show. Well that's, yeah, I mean
0: uh, it is true that we also then discovered that the kudu is the noblest of antelopes, judged so by Celis, the great scout in what was then Rhodesia and that just made us feel rather proud of, you know well, one does feel a bit proud of one's dog, doesn't one? It's, I, there was, I, I, it's terrible I, a woman came up to me in Bassey Park and she was living quite close and she's a sculptor and she wanted a model for a dog that she'd been commissioned, commissioned a dog sculpture by Batsy Dogs Home, and I thought, well, wow, you know, <laughs> it's a bit like being Kate Moss's mum, sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and
1: his dog does autographs as well. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, up there. Thank you. Hello, thank you. Uh, I'm enjoying the doggy stories very much, but I'd like to introduce a note of controversy oh, and yes. ask about Kudu's tail and whether, Ed, as a lifestyle columnist, do you think that Springer Spaniels and other dogs should keep the tails that nature gave them? Yes, I do. Great. Easy. Yes, So I do. do I. I do. <laughs> is that,
0: was that the right answer? Good. The only, the only thing I have to say is it, it does, I mean, when he's in the country, it does collect quite a lot. You, you know you see those military jeeps that go along with a waggling sort of thing? It gets a sort of bramble in it. It looks like one of those for quite a long time. Um, but yes, I'm very much against that. And Springer talking.
1: Spaniels and coffee tables are not a good mix.
0: Uh, no. Well, uh, you mean the tails? Yes. Yeah. No. Uh, he's all right on that front, actually. He I mean, You're
1: not uh, going to admit he's no, any well, fault Well, well. A well,
0: <laughs> bit smelly sometimes.
1: <laughs> right. More questions, please. Yes. Gentleman in the middle there. Thank you. It's on. I promise you. Uh, I wonder, could you just briefly talk about... Uh,
0: Poo etiquette. Poo et- etiquette. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make it very brief, shall we? <laughs>
1: uh, so I have a, particular... a grey hand who delights in finding the most impossible place for me to go and recover the poo. I wonder if Kudu had a similar problem. Uh,
0: well, I, I have to admit, I, I, I'm going to read you a poo story, actually, since you raised it. But I have to I have to admit, regard that as... an an advantage, because sometimes it's so impossible you just have to give up on the grounds that nobody else would go there either. So it's probably <laughs> all right. But um, no, one of the one of the obstacles I had to um, overcome before we got him uh, was some of the bad memories of previous dog experiences, and, and this was um, one of them. I once shared my life with a rumbustious spabrador, a spaniel Labrador cross, but even her most searing indiscretions have now been rose-tinted into jolly anecdotes. When she was a puppy, my daughter trained her to use a sheet of newspaper as her lavatory. One Sunday morning, she jumped on the bed as I was reading the Sunday Telegraph. <laughs> and before you could say, Pavlov, there it was, <laughs> hot and steaming in the middle of a piece of finely crafted prose from Sir Peregrine Wursthorne. The
1: question, the obvious question there, was that because of the paper or because of the author <laughs> of the piece you were reading? Well. We shall never know. No, um, perhaps not, and perhaps as well. Right, more questions. We've got somebody there? Yes, we've got somebody here. Thank you. And then somebody up behind you. Do you think there's a case for restoring the dog licence system?
0: Uh, not really, because it seems to me that we, by and large, are quite responsible about keeping our dogs. I suppose the one area in which it would help is the whole thing of fighting dogs, which has become a real problem, especially in, in London. I don't know whether that's true here too. But it's actually it's where, where I live in South London. It's, it's one of those bits of London where you've got a sort of polite residential bit against quite a rough residential bit. And there's nowhere that the divide is so obvious than in the local park, where you have these rather well-behaved Springer Spaniards and the like, and, and really quite scary um, fighting, fighting dogs, which I just think is the most horrible kind of phenomenon and, and does seem to be on the increase. It, it may be one of those things, on the other hand, that we, we think are more of a problem now than they used to be. Just reading back a bit on the history of dogs in this country, fighting dogs was, were, were a really huge phenomenon, certainly through the 19th century. and People were still breeding them for export to America up until the 1940s. So we do seem to have rather a bad history in this regard. Um, but I'm not sure that... Well, would the license help with that? I suppose if, if, if sort of, you, know, you had to have a, an MOT and it was made sure that you're looking after your dog properly before it was renewed, but that would be quite a task. When, when, I find when you ring the RSPCA or the police, they say actually there's quite a limited number of things that we can do with these dogs. We'll go around and have a chat with the, with the owner, but unless they're actually a dangerous dog as classified under the law, there's not much they seem able to do about it.
1: You spoke earlier, Ed, when we were were chatting about um, having been in France and um, the remarkable number of of private private people who have a remarkable number of hunting dogs.
0: Well, I I was just telling you, Ruth, uh, we were on a holiday in southern France um, this summer and one of the neighbouring farms had ten Griffon Bleu dogs for boar hunting and another ten Ariégeois dogs, which are the local dogs, for hunting hares quite extraordinary. You'd never find that in this country. And it's a much doggier culture, rural France. If you go to a restaurant, it's not a question to, for a remotely of, you know, can I bring my dog? It's just assumed that you, you can. They go
1: as long as you leave the children at the
0: door. Uh, no, 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 no. They're very tolerant of children, too. But, but, but,
1: what I loved about your holiday tale was you'd taken Kudu um, this time, and he immediately became, you know, he immediately know. became French.
0: He did. Well, not just French, but a pretty yobbish local dog,
1: actually.
0: <laughs> the village dogs would turn up in the morning and say, come on, let's go make mischief in the farmyard, and off he'd go. Quite extraordinary how quickly the transformation... No,
1: it's quite comforting, it? really. More questions. Yes, in the middle there. Thank you. Oh, so we've got a lady waiting there, first of all, and then in the middle there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, again, I'm a virgin when it comes to asking questions. I've never done this before. Um, we both volunteer for a charity called Pets' Therapy. We take our dogs round to visit people in, in hospitals and nursing homes, and gives the, older, the elderly people we visit a chance to have a cuddle and everything else. And I just wondered what your views were on people like us who go around doing this sort of voluntary work.
0: Full of admiration. <laughs> and, no, really full of, and I do think, I mean, so I can say this without sounding sentimental because I'm among dog lovers here, but I do think they have a wonderful ability to have a sense of people's condition, and if they feel ill or distressed, they immediately respond to that in kind. I think they're very, you know, very good at that that kind of thing. Sorry. I'm sure that's yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, I mean, it's true, isn't it? If 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 you are ill or in distress, your dog immediately shows sympathy. Um, and and my father-in-law's quite getting on a bit now, and he came round after having bit of a turn, and the dog just lay on the bed until he got better. It's, it's very, very attractive. I will actually, you'll forgive me of if, if introducing a slight note of levity, but can I read you um, something which was said to me by uh, a, a GP who is a dog owner and a huge um, uh, champion, really, of, of the good, that, good health things that dogs can do in terms of reducing your risk of stroke and so forth. And she'd said to me that she kept um, a dog in her surgery, because she's so keen on, on the value of, of, of dogs. Um, and I wrote this up in a column. And she then wrote to me to explain um, that she'd had to stop this practice. And she told me a story which um, explained why. It's, it's, it's a little bit indelicate. Do you think I can? Is it right? Can I risk it?
1: A bit late? No. OK. Well, okay. <laughs>
0: um, when this column came out, my dog-loving doctor friend telephoned me to say that she no longer keeps her dog in the consulting room. She'd been forced to abandon the arrangement after an unfortunate incident during a cervical smear. She had, as she delicately put it, just introduced the speculum when the dog, which had been snoozing quietly in its corner, had a rabbit chasing dream and suddenly emitted a prolonged, slobbery snuffle. Who have you got hiding in here, shrieked the patient as she tried to jam her legs shut, which was tricky since my doctor friend was, of course, standing between them by this stage. (laughs) Molly now takes her naps elsewhere in the surgery. (laughs)
1: Uh, Yes, (laughs) somebody here had their hand up. Yes,
0: the the question I've got. um, I find dog walking wonderfully peaceful and uh, and reflective. And, um, Ed, the question really for you is... um, for all of the work that you do, how much does uh, walking Kurdish help you in preparation for your work? Well, that was absolutely oddly enough, one of the reasons that I got him. Um, when you're writing a book, which I was at the time that that that, uh, that he came into our lives, I find that quite often, if you if you've got a problem and you focus on it quite hard and you can't crack it, you can't work out how the narrative should go in a particular chapter or how the ideas should be organized. And then you go for a walk and you let it sort of moulder away in the back of your mind. And you, you think about the trees and you watch the dog and you clean up after it and all that sort of stuff. By the time you get back after that, suddenly the problems in some magical way resolved itself inside uh, your mind. And I find that immensely, not so much in preparation, just a, a very good punctuation to the working, um, to the working day. They're also quite good as sort of reminders that you need to take a screen break from time to time, aren't they? Because if you've been working for hours, the dog will come biff you and say, come on, it's time to take me out now, or whatever it is. Um, I think, generally, they're very good for working lives. Uh, for example, you can't have a, an argument in front of the dog, I don't think, because they object like mad. They get very cross, well mine does. If, if he sees um, anybody sort of getting cross, he sort of you know perks up and, and, and looks uh, quite offended. I think dogs in offices would be rather good. Interestingly, um, while I was doing this, I I went to um, the Google headquarters in California, which are famously forward-looking in their sort of office um, policy. So they have basketball and they have swimming pools and they have um, all sorts of weird sculptures, bits of rocket coming out of the wall, and so forth. And all these incredibly clever young men and women writing code, as they say, which is sort of you know what they do when they put binary numbers together, to, don't ask me, but to refine the search.
1: There's no chance I, will. No,
0: well, I well, I didn't understand that. And there was, a, I, I, there was a wonderful moment when one of the founders of, of uh, Google um, rollerbladed through reception carrying his lunch like this. So it was sort of a perfect California moment. But amid all this, people had dogs. They just had an open dog policy, and, and these people were working with dogs at their feet. And it just added to the sort of more relaxed, creative atmosphere. So. Um, I think, I mean, as I said, I don't, I don't sit there with the dog in the studio, but I do find it's very much part of the sort of intellectual rhythm of, of the day, and certainly helps hugely when you're, when you're writing a serious book. Not that this is a serious one, but I know. was at the time. <laughs> of
1: course it is. Um, there's not a danger of dogs being used, um, and I plead guilty to this myself, as displacement activity. For Wobbing.
0: Work avoidance behavior. Yes, yeah. there is. No, I think that's absolutely true. But a bit of that's no bad thing, I think, if you're doing... I mean, well, you must know this. I mean, writing is a very solitary... Pursuit and you can get quite sort of lonely and grumpy, and that stops you being creative. I, I find, and I, the dog no, I'm not
1: dissenting from that, yeah. but I'm just thinking that you know there's always a hundred things that you could suddenly find a pressing need to do
0: with a dog, yeah,
1: or whatever else comes to hand to avoid starting writing. This is
0: true, this is true, this is true.
1: More questions, please. we got somebody up there, have you? There, oh, there's one here, beg your pardon. Dog walkers, I sadly live in London, and there it's very prevalent. Indeed, I know one council who tried to limit the number of dogs uh, to two per walker, Traditions. whereas in Portobello Road early in the morning, I've seen a man on a bike with six dogs, three on either side. And he's on the bike, and they're running alongside. <laughs> now, I don't know if it's prevalent in Edinburgh or not, but I just wonder how you felt about dog walkers.
0: Well, as we speak, Kudu is with a wonderful dog walker. Um, though oddly, precisely the problem you mentioned has slightly arisen because we've said that she's wonderful to so many people, that half his friends seem to be around there at the moment as well, and they've got ten or something. Um, but she's got a friend who helps her. I, I, I mean, I, I, I see quite a lot of them in Bassey Park, and they all seem quite jolly people. Um, a couple of... It, I mean, it's, it's become a real industry. I heard one story about a friend who... who was an accountant and he, his dog walker said to him, look, I have to admit, I've been sort of rather doing this on the sly from the tax man. I've just been collecting the cash and I really think I ought to sort of sort myself out and make myself legal. Would you mind going through my books? And the accountant said, do you realise you're making more than £100,000 a year dog walking? <laughs> it's also become rather cutthroat. And another friend of ours in, in, in South London um, said she found one who would send her at the end of the day an email detailing what exactly had gone on in the course of that morning's <laughs> walk, you know. Buster had a good run today and, you know, sort of <laughs> which must have been an imaginative effort to do every day, but um, was definitely, you know, intended to portray himself as an upmarket dog walker.
1: <laughs> thank you. Anybody else? Yes, if there? And, is that? yep, thank you. I was really interested talking about world leaders and the dogs that they had and being from the west of the country as you can probably tell I have a mixed race dog I have a dog made of, of many many different kinds of breeds and therefore you know what we would call a mongrel and I wondered if there was any world leader you thought would benefit from a mixed race dog hmm
0: well, didn't didn't Obama say that he was a, his dog was a bit like him? Just, didn't he describe his dog as a mongrel or no, himself got, as a mongrel? He's got a, he's got a yes, but Portuguese yes, but he made some not? reference, didn't he? Oh, so. He Pardon said me? what? Mutt. Like That's what, a mutt like me. <laughs> well, corner, he's uh, but animal. he's a very smart one, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, but, and he's an, analogetic. Or, uh, the one that doesn't give you hay fever or something. Hyper. Oh, right. uh, uh, he's that? Energetic. Yes. Hi-po- well, I don't. I mean trying to think of world leaders that we disapprove of. Well, Gaddafi used to call was known as Mad Dog, wasn't he, at various times during his, during his, uh, during his reign. Um, perhaps Sarkozy wouldn't, wouldn't go amiss. He might sort of calm him down a bit. He might be a bit a bit less energetic if he had to, a dog to play with. I it
1: would be too obvious to give Angela, Mer- Angela Merkel a gaff soon, would it? It would, it would a
0: bit, yes, yes. <laughs> I have no idea about, about her dog-owning proclivities at all. Do you probably you, none, I suspect. Okay,
1: Ed. Ed, I know this is a doggy audience and indeed a doggy <laughs> interview, but um, could we just, in the, sh- just the short time we've got left, it would be nice, I think, for this audience to get some kind of insight into the certain career path henceforth as opposed to what's gone before. I mean, oh, what's the game know. plan
0: now? Do you know? I don't. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, um, I hope that Radio 4 will keep letting me broadcast on the airwaves because I love doing that. Um, I've also just started work on a new book, which you know, is one allowed to talk about new books. It's a, it's yes. a, such a, I tell you, it's a, such a fascinating subject. I haven't quite worked out how to do it. but I, Every year there's a walk across the Pyrenees um, in memory of the people who escaped that way during the Second World War. Allied airmen who were shot down, soldiers who got stuck at Dunkirk, Jews who were escaping the deportations, French resistance, um, mm-hmm. fighters, and I did it this year, and it was, it was really tough. It was four, the equivalent of climbing Ben Nevis four times in four days. But it was fantastic experience, and the people who do it have all got some connection to the people who did it for real or some reason to remember them. So I'm trying to do something. We're doing a Radio 4 series that's coming out in November, but I'm trying to do a book on it, using their stories to take you back into that period, because it's such a fascinating past period of history that we don't know a huge amount about I mean, the, the, the thought of what it was like say to be shot down in the middle of belgium and somehow make your way to southwest france through german occupied territory and then go through this enormous physical ordeal of getting across into spain that that's my sort of that's my current it
1: sounds obsession it's as if the people involved are, not, are going on a the equivalent of a pilgrimage
0: then. I think there is a little bit about, of, of, of that about it. I mean, one man we'd spoke to had not known that his father had done this until his father died and he read it in his diary that he'd had this extraordinary journey and, and he'd sort of come to do it to sort of pay tribute to what his mm-hmm. father had done. And there was another young man whose brother had recently been killed in Afghanistan. He said, I'm doing this to remember my brother and I've got his rucksack and I've got his tunes on my iPod. So they were sort of making a kind of pilgrimage of, of memory. Um, and it's, as I haven't quite worked out what to do, but it's it's such a rich subject that that's, that's my immediate career plan.
1: And hopefully finished in time for the book festival next year. Oh,
0: well, <laughs> two years maybe. Kudu permitting. Kudu yeah. Yeah. permitting, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ladies
1: and gentlemen, Ed's not going to be rushing away this afternoon, he's going to be in the signing tent, which as you know is left and left again, and he can talk to you about kudu or anything else that you wish to talk to him about, and of course sign copies of this book. It's a very, it's a very Lovely read, but I could be slightly biased. Um, I plan to give it to my dog when I get home. Um,
0: I've signed it to him.
1: (laughs) He has. (gasps) He has. It's signed to my dog as well. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Ed Sturton. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed.
0: More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.